Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, if you walk into any national museum in any part of the world, you'll see artefacts of significance from coins to jewellery to weapons, artwork and even remains. And they're preserved there because they mean something. These objects tell us something about who we are and where we came from. But what if there's an object or a whole site that is tens, if not hundreds of metres underwater? How do we protect that particular part of our shared history from deterioration? Well, joining me now is Dr. David Gregory, Senior Researcher and Honorary Professor from the National Museum of Denmark to discuss. David, I suppose we can't really have this conversation without talking a little bit about the Titanic site, which we will maybe a little bit uh, later. But maybe you might start off talking to me a little bit about your work um, at the National Museum of Denmark. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for the kind introduction and uh, thank you for having me on the program. Yes, I I work at the National Museum of Denmark in our conservation department, and I work specifically with looking at the preservation of shipwrecks and other kinds of sites and materials that we find underwater. And that can range from shipwrecks to submerged prehistoric sites. We have a lot of underwater sites, certainly around Denmark, which were once on land, but since the last ice age, there's been a lot of sea level rise up to 100 metres around the world. And a lot of these prehistoric sites are now underwater. But more specifically, I work with trying to understand the various decay processes of these sites. They can be physical from waves, underwater currents, they can be biological organisms, and they can be chemical, such as corrosion. And trying to see how we can slow down that decay. We can never stop it completely, but how we can try to slow that decay down so we can preserve some of these sites that aren't excavated um, for the future. Okay, so um, take me through that deterioration process. Say uh, a Spanish galleon uh, hits rocks and is submerged and it's been there for, what, 5,000 years now nearly, or 500 years nearly. Um, (laughs) what, What exactly happens to that shipwreck? Well, if we take it from the point when it's hit the rocks and it's it's gradually settled down on, onto the seabed, it depends if the environment is such that the wreck is quickly covered or not, or if it's just lying exposed on the seabed. Now, if it's lying exposed on the seabed, and if it was around Irish waters or around Danish waters, um, we would probably have a lot of attack by um, wood boring organisms, such as shipworm or gribble, as they're called. Um, so shipworm, uh, Torido navalis, which has been a, a big threat to shipping in the past when ships were made of wood and any wooden artifacts. And these, they're, they're a very specialized muscle and they like to live on the wood and eat the wood and they can de- decay wood very quickly. We're talking decades, uh, not centuries. So if it's lying exposed and there are shipworm in the area, it can disappear very quickly. Would it go completely? Would it just be a, a, what, what metal parts were used in the shipbuilding left? That, that's, that's basically it. And oh. the other point I was going to say, those parts that actually, if we're lucky, sink into the seabed or are covered by sand, for example, uh, they're, they're the only parts that we'll find preserved. Um, because the, the shipworm that I mentioned, these these mussels, they have to have a certain amount of salinity in the water and they have to have oxygen from the water to help them respire. And in the seabed, there's very little oxygen, so they simply can't survive. So a lot of the wrecks we find, it's, it's what I'd call a... Um, 
like a herringbone. It's just the it's just the skeleton of the wreck that's been preserved in the seabed. But if I may just add, we're very fortunate in Denmark and in Scandinavia that in the eastern part of the Baltic, going up to Finland and northern Sweden, the salinity is too low for these shipworms. So you often hear in the press these wonderfully preserved wrecks are turning up, and that's simply because they're sitting on the seabed as they went down and there's no shipworm in the area to actually degrade them. So they decay very slowly, hundreds, thousands of years. So how many shipwrecks do we estimate are on the seafloor across the world, do we know? Well, um, there's a number that's often banded around uh, by UNESCO, which is it says uh, up to three million shipwrecks, which I think is rather conservative. I think there could be certainly a lot more shipwrecks out there, to be totally honest. Um, wow. <laughs> but I think to, to bring it closer to home, um, in, in Denmark, in our uh, National Monuments Register, we have uh, well over a 1,000 shipwrecks that are registered, but they estimate there to be over 20,000 shipwrecks in Danish territorial waters. And if we look around Ireland, they estimate that there are 15,000 shipwrecks in Irish territorial waters. And wow. there's been some, yeah, some fantastic work done uh, in a project called Infomar, which was carried out to survey all the seabed around Ireland. And they've done a very high resolution survey of the seabed and they've found over 400 wrecks. Um, and of those, 100 were from World War One and World War Two. So there are lots and lots of wrecks around the world. So even though 3 million may not be correct, there are thousands and thousands of wrecks. So how do you know if something's down there? Because you said they survey the seabed. They, they surely don't do that with drones or submersibles, right? Well, it's, it's a combination. A lot of the methods that are used are uh, acoustic methods. So that's using sound. And a lot of wrecks turn up when they're planning for uh, seabed development, if you like, uh, which right. would be laying of cables, uh, wind farms, which are coming up um, everywhere. And so as part of those projects, they go out and do survey with these acoustic methods, which basically send down a sound wave to the seabed, which returns, and they can show up in, in relatively high resolution, plus or minus 10 centimetres of what's lying wow. on the seabed. And so often you'll see a lot of these wrecks in the press that have been taken with what's called multi-beam echo sounder. So it's a, it's a very fancy, expensive uh, fish finder, if you like, but uh, that's how often things are documented and that's what we, we use. But then afterwards, um, what's called photogrammetry, where you can go down and using one of these underwater robots, a remotely operated vehicle, and take thousands and thousands of photos of the shipwreck and then using special software can paste those all together and make these three-dimensional models. So which I think is very nice because it makes these wrecks a little bit more accessible to, to everybody that's out there rather than just a few people that are looking in a submersible or from an ROV. Yeah, but I suppose the ideal is to to take them out, is it not? I mean, um, I was in Stockholm and I was lucky enough to see the Vasa. If you're ever in Stockholm, by the way, you have to see. It's an extraordinary ship um, built in the early 17th century that crashed because it was really badly designed. Um, but as a result, it didn't make it very far uh, out of, um, of of the bay. I understand it was only only a few hours at sea before it it it, it, um, it sank, and so they had a good idea where it was, and it was it was. It, 
it was recovered and it is now in a in a museum the entire thing which is extraordinary and you can you can really see history come to life there presumably we want to to do that or or is it sometimes better to preserve the sites as they are at the moment um there's very much this movement of trying to preserve sites in situ um, right. That's governed by uh, European legislation, uh, international uh, treaties. And the, uh, the idea is very much because there are so many uh, shipwrecks uh, out there that it's prohibitive to, to excavate and raise them all. And I agree with you. I think the Vasa is a fantastic uh, shipwreck. And as Jonathan says, I'd recommend seeing it if you have the chance. And there are several of these um kinds of wrecks around the world. I'm thinking of the Mary Rose in the UK. In Denmark, we have the Skrydalev ships, which are the remains of uh, Viking Age uh, vessels. Uh, if you go further afield to Australia, you have the Batavia, which are these large iconic shipwrecks that have been raised and conserved. And talking of conservation, that's, that's the uh, limiting step, if you like. Um, the Vasa, for example, that took 30, over 30 years to conserve it because the problem is that even though we don't have the shipworm, as I was mentioning earlier, we, didn't, we don't have the shipworm in Stockholm Harbour where the Vasa was found, um, but we still have this very, very slow degradation by bacteria and fungi, which basically all, this, all the nice sugar in the wood, which is, which is a lovely food for them. But... Um, Fortunately for us, they can't degrade the whole um, piece of wood. So we have this like a sponge, if you like. So we have to take it up very carefully. Right. And then we have to try to get the water out of the sponge uh, without uh, squeezing it and breaking it. So that is one of the big limiting steps. It takes a lot of time, um, a lot of uh, manpower, a lot of finances. And then, of course, you have to build um, a large museum for it. And... In connection with that, just to put it into context again, in, in the Baltic I mentioned, uh, Stockholm is in the Baltic, they found um, 200, over 200 wrecks like the Vasa that are just sitting on the seabed, um, wow. which which would be wonderful to take them all up um, and build lots of museums, but it, it really is unrealistic. And now we can do a lot of things remotely so we can still get information out. Um, mm. archaeological information, historical information, and we can still disseminate that information to the public through through other means than museums. And um, I'm not sure when, Jonathan, you were there, they've opened a new museum called the Rec Museum, which is a sister ship to the, the Vasa Museum. And uh, they're going very much down this this line where it, it's virtual presentation of the Rec. So right. we can still tell the stories, um, but we don't necessarily have all the artefacts. I was very fortunate to um, to visit um, Canada recently, uh, Parks Canada, that are working on Franklin's um, ships from the expeditions to find the the, um, the North uh, West Passage, uh, HMS Erebus and Terror. And they've gone down the line of doing a lot of laser scanning and digital um, recording and then doing 3D printing of artefacts. So it's maybe not the real thing, but people can have a, a feel of, of what is down there now. And in terms of your work as a, as a chemist and archaeologist, um, what is the focus of the science that you're, you're working on? Is it on finding ways to preserve this, this wood or are, are you working on something else? It, 
it's mainly trying to 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 know your um, to defeat your enemy. You you need to know your enemy. That's the idea. So we look very much at the various processes that are going on on the seabed. So that can be, as I mentioned earlier, physical uh, erosion of the seabed. We're looking at the, but there's the nothing chemistry. you can really do about that, though, is there? I mean, <laughs> if there's you know if there's a site and it's hundred meters underwater, you, you, there's no mitigation we can put in there to protect that site, or is there? This is this is p- part of the issue. Um, right. How to how we can if we understand the process, then we can try to mitigate. And some of the ways we've been using this not on deep sites. We uh, we don't. I haven't worked on many deep sites. To be honest, most of our sites are in 20, 30 meters of water. But we've been using artificial seagrasses. And the idea with natural seagrass is fantastic for stopping erosion of the seabed. And that's why there's a lot of concern um, within Europe that we're losing seagrasses because of pollution, because of eutrophication. That's where you have a lot of nutrients from runoff um, from land. Um, But we've been using artificial seagrass, which basically stops the erosion of the seabed. So we've put down these mats of artificial seagrass so that the plastic fronds stick up in the water and they slow down the currents so they prevent a further erosion and we've used those mainly on submerged prehistoric sites which can be like large landscapes if you like so it's not just a a site uh, one small area that we're trying to protect but you're quite right Jonathan and that's one of the things we're looking at this uh, idea of in situ preservation. I'm certainly an advocate for it, but it's not a panacea. It it won't cure everything, and I'm hoping that at the end of my career, all my research has shown that we can, when we find a new site, we can assess the site, look at all the potential threats, which could also be man-made, and then say, well, based on this scientific evidence, that site will be gone within five to ten years. So you need to do something about it to raise it. So trying to prioritise uh, what how we look at uh, the her- underwater heritage. But also there are in certain situations, we've got about 10 sites that have been preserved in situ in Denmark, which isn't many out of all of them, but they've been judged to be significant. There hasn't been the, the facilities to, to raise them, but they will be there hopefully for the people that come after me. Um, we're going to uh, post some pictures of the 3D models uh, that, that you can generate um, using these ROVs on our Twitter page. So um, twitter.com forward slash news talk science, because they do give you a really, really close and, and very detailed picture of what's down there on the seabed. Presumably, tourism and looting are uh, a, a danger to to these sites if it's a new site and it's only 100 metres down or so. Is, is that an issue, um, looting and um, and tourism? I think it, it can be certainly with the um, development in, in technical diving. Now, um, we were recently looking at um, wrecks, again, in the eastern Baltic, very well preserved, in 150 metres of water, and divers will probably be going down there on those sites, not necessarily to loot them, but, I mean, the the, the capability is there. And there are archaeologists working in Malta and they have a site that is well over 100 metres deep. They're doing archaeological work. I think they only have 14 minutes of bottom time on the on the setup they're using, but um, it is possible to dive these sites. And I think it's it's good that there is tourism on these sites as long as it's responsibly carried out, so not looting and so on. Yeah, I suppose, as I said, we can't really not talk about the Titanic, um, the, the awful tragedy that happened there. Has that 
affected how we think about or 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 plan to uh, to, to visit sites like this? To, has has it had an effect on your work? It hasn't had an effect on on my work, but I've had a, a, a number of colleagues that have been contacted in relation to this. I mentioned that I was in Canada recently, and the head of the Maritime uh, Archaeological Unit was 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 involved with the the rescue attempt uh, and and so on, and, and also asked to comment on it. And uh, I have other colleagues that where the the, the cruise industry is coming back on enormously after the pandemic. There is this interest in underwater cultural heritage. Certainly, if you're sailing around on a nice ship, you'd like lectures and like to be able to see these sites. And we are noticing that. And I think it was it was unbelievably tragic what happened uh, recently mm. over the Titanic. I do hope that it can be carried out responsibly. I think it, if we can access these sites somehow, whether it's um, in these situations, it's very rich people that can do it. Um, but I, I think it would be nice that if we can continue doing this, but in a responsible way. Yeah. And it's 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 very interesting um, that um, recently there's there's a, a paper going around within the discipline about how to deal with the Titanic in the future. This issue of should it be available for tourism, as it is, it's a memorial, if you like, for all the people that died on the site. So there are these other ethical questions. Um, what are we actually going down to to look at this site for, rather than visiting perhaps the Victoria and Albert Museum, if if one wants to get an idea of of society at that time. So I think it is. It's it's nothing is ever black and white. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose there's little new to be gleaned from going down there. Um, you won't get any newer information, so it's an experiential thing. Uh, it's a question, I suppose, uh, we can ask about all sorts of exploration to, to these preserved sites. I totally agree. It's, uh, and one of the, uh, in the new project we've just started with um, European funding, the Endure project, uh, that's one of the elements we're, we're looking at is what do these sites actually mean to, to people. I'm extremely privileged that I can be a bit of a nerd and, and try to look at the various bacteria and things that are degrading these wrecks, but there is an overall purpose to it. I personally feel deeply privileged but also engaged that um, my father was was a sailor and I've got photos of him with his with his crew on HMS Glasgow back in the Suez crisis back in the 50s and you see similar photos from the wrecks from uh, the Battle of Jutland for example where you've got the whole crew there um, my father was fortunate to to survive that uh, meet my mother and I'm here and other people weren't so I have this deep involvement engagement that it is important that we have a sense of memory of the past, whether it's more modern um, or the the ancient past, if you like, as you're saying. I think we, as as humans, it's important to know where we've come from and hopefully find out where we where we're going from from the past. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, David Gregory, senior researcher and honorary professor from the National Museum of Denmark. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you ever so much for having me, Jonathan. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. <laughs>